Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 31st episode of Mac PFD Spark. Today we will be listening to two discussions about the human experience. First, we will have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Rafi Setrak weave a powerful vignette of his life experiences and how those experiences helped guide him to key positions in healthcare. Next, we will be hearing about the experiences of becoming a patient as a provider and the understanding derived from that with Nicole Jelek. Please enjoy the episode. Hello, Spark listeners, and welcome to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. My name is Anjali Kundi, and I'm the coordinator for faculty development at the Niagara campus of McMaster School of Medicine. It is my great pleasure today to introduce you to our guest for the show, Dr. Rafi Setrak. Rafi is the Regional Chief of Emergency Medicine in Niagara and the Clinical Education Coordinator for McMaster's Niagara campus. He's also an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine. So thank you, Rafi, for being here. So oh, glad thank to have you, you for having me. This is lovely. So Rafi and I are going to try something a little bit different for Spark today. We thought it would be cool to look at leadership through the lens of photos. And I know what you're thinking in your car or in your space. How are we going to do a podcast based around photos? But Rafi and I are in the same room. We are observing all COVID precautions. Don't worry, listeners. But we're going to look at some personal photos and we're going to try and tell Rafi's leadership story through that. I think it'll be a really interesting way to reflect on how he got to where he is. And I think we can all pick up some pearls from that. What do you think, Rafi? Oh, let's do it. All right. So let's start us off. So this is where we are right now. And I'm going to try to describe what we see. This is sort of a video from Google Earth of where we are now in St. Catharines. And it's so green and lush. And sort of to take you back to where I was born, I was born thousands of miles away in Baghdad, Iraq, out of all places. And you can notice as Google Earth turns how the color green is replaced with desert colors. So this is where I was born almost 51 years ago. And I had a pretty nice childhood, I have to say. Both my parents are architects. They both worked for the government. They were government employees. My dad had a firm that he worked in also. He owned a firm in the evenings. He's a prolific designer. And this is very funny. So the picture on the left, the picture on the left shows my baptism. Little did I know that the priest who's baptizing me, I was going to end up marrying his granddaughter. Oh, wow. Almost That's a 25 nice Five years later. And so the picture from 1974, that's what do you call in English the Sunday before Easter? There might be a word, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure, not sure it is because I, I know it in Arabic, but I'm, I'm, I'm well, having Well, tell us in Arabic. Okay. Sha'anin. Okay. It's, so it's an important day. It's an important day. Yes. So that's, that's in church with my mom, and that's with my sister when she was born in 1972. Excellent. So my mom was a traveler. She traveled for work, and she made sure that we were exposed to the world. And you will see all these dates are in the 70s. And these are pictures of me on the Mediterranean with my mom and dad, with my sister and my dad in Beirut. This was Disneyland in New York. That was in 1978, I think. 
Paris, maybe in the mid-70s, like 76. The picture from Niagara Falls is the one I discovered as of late. This was in 1978, and this is me standing on the American side with my mom and dad as an eight-year-old, not knowing that, you know, in 20 years, I'm going to be living on the other side of this river. Absolutely. There's some amazing uh, foretelling in in that photo. And it's remarkable that these were very probably very far like these are huge distances if we think about you know the distance from Iraq to Niagara Falls it's not an easy journey to take your your two kids in the late 70s halfway around the world oh yeah and it was it was my mom my dad still does not like traveling but it was my mom she's a prolific traveler and she made sure that we saw the world and that continued until 1980 what Mm -hmm. we call the first Gulf War Uh so a major turning point in your history not to mention the history of the world so I grew up during the Iran-Iraq War. That's, you know, from I was in elementary school when it started and I was in university when it ended. And it shaped a lot of my, my childhood. All of my education was probably through wartime. Between the Gulf War to Operation Desert Storm mm-hmm. and the wars that followed, I spent most of my education during war. And it was, it was pretty interesting. Was it protective? Was it, you know, a a safe space? Did you feel conflicted? It becomes just a way of life. Okay. Everything becomes natural after a while. There were some ups and downs. Definitely Operation Desert Storm was a turning point. The year after that, I had trouble adjusting. Okay. Uh, I struggled at school. It took a bit of adjustment to this big event Mm -hmm. in our lives. But for most of it, it becomes just a fact of life. You tend to become a little more reckless, I think, in danger, just because the whole environment is high risk. So you do become a little reckless, I think. I don't know. But that was my experience. It was all I had. Ah, this is very nice. So my aunt was a civil engineer, and she uh, did her master's at Berkeley, uh, University of California. And she brought the first computer lab to the University of Baghdad when I was probably 10 years old. Okay. So this was, I started coding. Wow. When I was 10 years old. And I really knew what I was going to become. I was going to become a computer engineer. Funny story. When I went for my, for my interview for medical school, Everybody was nervous, preparing for the interview, and I went in my jeans and t-shirt. I didn't want to go to medical school. I only applied so my mom would stop nagging me. And I walk into the interview, and these, you know, old guys are sitting, and it's a formal, you know, old-fashioned interview, and they asked me why I wanted to be a doctor, and I said, I don't want to be a doctor. Have you heard of this thing called computers? And I went on a rant for like half an hour talking about computers. They took me in, and here I am. Amazing. Until that day, I really knew how my life was going to turn out. And this is probably one of the biggest lessons that I learned along the way. And you'll probably see more examples of this is you really never know where you're going to end up. You'll plan and then doors will close and then other doors will open. And if you only have the courage to walk through them, life will unfold. And for the better, for the worse, you never know, but it will unfold. And it is, it is a journey that you have to go through. And this was probably one of my biggest turning points in my life, completely by chance, completely not wanting it, and ended up being a physician because I didn't want to become a physician. Amazing. 
It's interesting that it really ties for me into what you said earlier about living through, you know, having this childhood and adolescence and, you know, early adulthood linked to war, you know, that ability to take risks and the ability or almost, uh, you know, idea of, of living dangerously and trying things and, you know, to hear you put yourself out there as an applicant to medical school, you know, that was a huge gamble and, and one that, as you say, you didn't necessarily care about the outcome, but what an amazing thing to sort of put yourself in that bucket anyways. Yeah. I don't know if it's intentional though. I'll be honest with you. All my mom could think about was me becoming a doctor. I'm the first doctor in my family. My grandparents are refugees from Armenia my uh, and Lebanon. My grandfather is a tailor. My other grandfather is a steel worker. He used to make pipelines, oil pipelines. Their children became architects. I am the first doctor in my family. There, there, there are none. And so this is me in my medical school class. I spent six years. We do the British system like most of the world, unlike you know, North America, yes. you go straight from high school and you spend six or seven years in medical school. It's amazing to me, Rafi. I want to just linger on this photo for a moment. The predominance of men in the photo. So your medical school is, I would say, 96% male. And I'm going to give them a 50% mustaches. Yes, more than 50% yep, mustaches. Was uh, I was one of the very few who did not have mm -hmm. a mustache. It is a measure of manhood in the Middle East. Okay. Not that I can't grow one. You know, I have raised <laughs> probably sixty or $70,000 for our prostate research absolutely, program growing absolutely. Movembers. In fact, this was a pretty progressive class. We were 50 in my class, 10 women. Okay. We were 80% men. And if you look at the faculty, the faculty was also pretty mixed yes that's definitely visible so that was probably 1990 okay. or 1989 i think that was okay. 1989 yeah because war again 1990 saddam Hussein invaded kuwait mm -hmm. uh, 1991 operation desert storm that was a very dark period of our lives the economy fell apart there was severe political oppression not what that wasn't before but it became really Alcohol. oppressive so we had three years without a phone didn't have a, a telephone for three years. And this is during medical school. This is during medical school. Okay. This is fourth year medical school. And if you remember when we were having conversations about students during mm -hmm. COVID returning to clinical education, I told the story that after the bombing campaign ended, it was about 100 days, within a couple of months, we were back to medical school, to medical education. And what happened, again, another unforeseen thing is we did learn differently probably than the cohort that went before us. But that didn't mean we didn't learn. And I would say we developed certain skills, certain survival skills, certain sort of investigative skills, certain clinical acumen that we were forced to develop because we were back at a time of difficulty and at a time of scarcity and a time when things were not that easy. We had a full year of almost no electricity. If you're lucky, if you get it for half an hour, an hour a day, we had very limited running water, limited fuel. It was, it was, it was tough. And if you think about the folks that were with you on this journey, do you think that your experiences are representative of what others were feeling? Were there folks in the cohort who didn't have that flexibility, who didn't have that adaptability? And, and what happened to those individuals? One of our classmates who, for the lack of a better word, crashed and burned. But most of us survived. Okay. It is amazing how enduring the human race is. Absolutely. In everybody in a different way. Yeah. We'd like to think that we are all the same. We are not. 
And I think there's a lot of strength in that. There's a lot of adaptability in the fact that we are different. Mm -hmm. That's one of the reasons we are so resilient. Mm -hmm. Some of us are more adaptable than others. Some find it harder and some find it easier. Some sure. thrive on chaos. However, at the end, we all survived. And my classmates are scattered all over the world from, you know, orthopedicians and family docs in Australia to pediatricians and ICU docs in England to, from my class here in Ontario, there is a, two eMERGE docs, two family docs, and an ophthalmologist. Amazing. From a class of 50. We are in this province. So these are amazing experiences to have lived through. And, you know, we've touched on resilience and we've touched on risk. And I'm wondering how those experiences led to compassion and the development of compassion. Because these were hard times. Just hearing about it makes me feel awful inside. I think there are two sides to hardship. I think there is the personal experience and then there is the experience of watching others who are less fortunate than you. That probably shaped me more than my own hardships, whether it was patients or neighbors or friends. I lost my first friend to an aerial bombardment when I was in grade 10. Oh, I never thought yeah. I was going to hit me that hard. Sorry. No, that's... Uh, thank you for being honest. Sako is a guy who is bigger than life. And I don't know if my loss or his family's loss or his own personal demise was the hardest part. But it does make you more human. For those of you who are not with us, we're both crying and passing tissues. Sorry about that. No apology necessary. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible path your life has taken. Well, there's more to come. Okay, let's see what happens next. Let's see what happens next. Ah, 1993, one of the best years of my life. So this is me at my medical school graduation. And ah, let's look at where the first row is. Fadi is, we're starting right front. Fadi is an ophthalmologist in Oakville. And I think he works in Brampton as well. I don't know where he is. Sally is a family dog in Scotland. Afra is a pediatrician in Ireland, I think. Oh, Ali is an orthopedic surgeon somewhere in Australia or New Zealand. I think Australia. I am here. I don't know where she is. Oh, Amen and his wife ended up becoming family docs in Tasmania out of all places. Wow. Yes. Mo is a, he's an intensivist in Glasgow in, in Scotland. Ali is a surgeon in, he's an orthopedic surgeon in New Zealand, I think. And it goes on. Maya is a family doc in Ontario, in Oakville. Wow, this is an amazing picture. It is. I need to direct your attention, though, to the picture on the right. That is the one I'm far more excited <laughs> about. Tell us about this beautiful woman in a gorgeous white dress with some amazing embroidery. This is the love of my life. 1993, I graduated medical school and I got married. Amazing. I was not yet 24. You were just a baby. I was a baby. And little did I know about the journey that was going to happen ahead of us. So this was our wedding. It was during embargo. Funny story. Sugar and flour were rationed 
Oh, goodness. How do you make a wedding cake on exactly. uh, sugar you, and flour rations? You're not allowed to make wedding cakes because all the bakeries can only make bread. That's... So my sister made my wedding cake. Oh, she is a love. good baker. Yeah, she is. She, she lives in uh, Richmond Hill, Ontario. She works in a weird field of business continuity, which is how businesses survive hard times. This is a sort of a branch of business that evolved after uh, 9-11. Okay. And she worked in IT and then became specialized in business continuity. So Interesting. she travels the world. Well, not now. Uh, now she zooms all over the world. And that's how they make sure business does not fall apart during things like pandemic. Mm-hmm, so she's mm-hmm. very busy nowadays. Yes. Well, she does about 14-hour days every day. So that was 1993. Very good year. 1994. So finished my basic medical training in uh Left the country with my wife. And out of all places, I ended up in Yemen. Now, the pictures I I have to tell our our listening audience here, they're beautiful. These buildings are spectacular, you know, kind of built into cliff sides and rock. And, you know, you see desert sand and succulent plants. And and it's just... That's a cactus on the left. They have amazing cacti. It's massive. They are massive. Yemen is one of the... It's probably the earliest civilization that had multi-story buildings. So these are 100-year-old buildings that are five stories high. You don't see that much. No. Uh, Arrived in Yemen just after the Civil War had ended there, just a few months after the Civil War had ended there. Lived there for about four years. Practiced medicine, taught biology, taught English. That was my first job. I interviewed for an English teacher job, and, uh, and I went as an English teacher. So not medical at all? Well, that was my first job. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was looking for a place to go, and I had a connection with Yemen, and I did an interview, and I and I got a job as a substitute English teacher. So I went, and All right. and and from there, life branched again. Another example of you never know where yeah. life's going to take you. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you, it's just amazing. So you I, have this medical degree in your pocket, yeah. but you sign up to be an, an English, English teacher. teacher. Yeah. And from there, I teach biology, and from there, I practice medicine, and then from there, I do some administration, and you have to survive. You do. Right? And 1998, I arrive in Canada <laughs> with my wife. This is, a very, this is very amusing to me because there's clearly like a... I, I imagine you don't know these people. This is like stock. Uh, this is a of stock Canada. image from Immigration Canada Love website. It. Love it. <laughs> these very happy people, you know, a, a mixed bunch of young people clutching passports with great big smiles, like, you know, Colgate white strips size smiles. However, the building on the left is true. This is the building where I rented my, our first apartment. Funny story. So we rent this apartment because my, my mom and dad were coming. And they arrive a few weeks later. It's a three-bedroom apartment. And then my mom gets this job as a project manager for construction with Motel 6. Motel 6 was looking for someone to manage their introduction to the Canadian market. There were no Motel 6s before 1998 in Canada. And they did not have any presence. So my mom gets this job. She's spent her life up to that point in uh, construction management for tourism. So she gets the job, her first job in Canada. And they say, okay, well, we don't have a presence yet. You're going to have to start your own company and sort of run this. So this three-bedroom apartment in 125 Parkway Forest Drive in North York, we lived in one of the bedrooms. My mom and dad lived in the other bedroom. And the third bedroom was an office. And during the day, it was the project management office from Motel 6. 
That's where Pickering and Burlington Motel 6 were built out of. Wow. And at night, when, when my mom closes up shop after the U.S. office closes, a little bit later, they were, I think, central, central time zone, it turns into my study space. So I study overnight, and then my mom opens the office again at 8 o'clock in the same room. Multi-purpose flex space. This is, again, like groundbreaking, you know? <laughs> well, now time and space seem... management. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So within less than a year, I managed to take all my exams, got my provisional license in Newfoundland, did a course at MUN, and within a year and a half, I was working. So now this is back to medicine. This is back to medicine. I did practice medicine in Yemen. So I, I did my training, then in Yemen I did medicine, and then I went off for about a year. Okay. And then I went back to rural family medicine Okay. in Fairland, Newfoundland. Just uh, for the listeners, the photo here of Newfoundland is gorgeous. It's got this giant iceberg in yep. the back and then two buildings and then the rurality and the, the starkness that is classic of the East Coast and really couldn't be anywhere else. Six and a half years, I think. And what was the population of uh, So Fairland was probably about 800 people. I lived in Calvert first and then in... Cape Royal after. Population probably five, six hundred each. Cape Royal was a little bit larger, I think. The whole coast, so we were the only clinic for about maybe 150 kilometers of the highway. We had probably 6,500 charts wow. uh, in the clinic. The population would, you know, shrink in the winter and, you know, grow in the, uh, grow summer. In the summer. Absolutely. And we were the only game in town. So there was nothing else. That was the clinic. What May led you to Fairland? What was the East Coast attraction? Was it that there was a job? Again, you've you know taken you, these dice and you've just thrown them across the country and that's where you land. So it's another example of where you don't know where life is going to take you. So I'm in Yemen. I get the okay that we're coming to Canada. And at that time, the Canadian government's position was we did not need doctors. So my wife was the applicant. My wife's a computer engineer. So she was the applicant and I was the spouse. So I start writing to all these licensing bodies in Canada asking them how to get a license. And most did not answer. I think Northwestern Territory sent me one of the worst answers. What was their response? Uh, something like, you know, how dare you? <laughs> 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 something like that. <laughs> and Newfoundland actually sent me their bylaws. And I read through the bylaws and there was this provisional license class and I read through it and yeah, that fits me. And they had some other requirements. You had got so much in your evaluating exam and so much in your qualifying exam. And you have to be less than one year out of practice. And perfect. So I land. I hit the ground running. Within about 10 months, nine months of landing in Canada, I had passed my evaluating. I would passed my qualifying. I had applied for a license in Newfoundland. They had me do three months at MUN because I was missing psychiatry in my training. Okay. And I was looking for a job. And this clinic had two doctors. One of them had left for a year to do a year in emergency medicine. Okay. So the contract was available. So I took it for a year. He never came back. I never left. Amazing. And stayed there for six and a half years. Wow. My kids were born there. Okay. Some Just of my best friends Give there. us a little indulgence in the kids here. So I'm the proud father of two IVF twins. Amazing. So another, you know, sort of sentinel event maybe. In, in, <laughs> I would argue IVF in 2020 is not an easy journey. IVF in the year 2000, also not an easy journey. 
there is no IVF program in St. John's, Newfoundland. Oh, my goodness. Exactly. So how do you do it? It is a marvel of time management. So you start your injections, you do your ultrasounds, and when you're ready for harvesting, on a 24-hour notice, you hop on a plane and you go to Halifax. However, another layer of complexity, they thought, oh, you might require ICSI, which is intracytoplasmic yep. sperm injection. And the ICSI program in Halifax has just started. They're not really experienced. So if you want to go somewhere, we recommend Calgary. Oh my goodness. Now you're crossing time zones and you are... Try to book two seats on a flight tomorrow. to Calgary tomorrow yeah, right. from St. John's, Newfoundland. So I couldn't get two seats. So I called and said, okay, you have about 36 hours. You can arrive after your wife. Okay. So I find a direct flight for my wife and she leaves. And I do this. I fly the next day, St. John's, Halifax, Halifax, Ottawa, Ottawa, Calgary. Amazing. You That's, get there in time? I got there about two hours before harvesting. Wow. <laughs> and tell me that that's the cycle that resulted in your beautiful children. That was the cycle. That's we implanted two embryos. I have a picture of them in a like 32-6, 32-cell blastocyst or blastomere. You know, and the number of things that had to go right for that to happen is like, again, it's magical. And you know what? You realize how little control you have over things. You're just swimming. Yeah. And the current Literally will take and you. figuratively. <laughs> yeah. You're just swimming and the current will take you where the current wants to take you. And I think most of the times you can only swim with the current and try to direct yourself somewhere you want to be. Because if you keep swimming against the current, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to be exhausted. Yeah, you're going to be exhausted. And the experience is going to be tough. And maybe those are the lessons in life and humanity that you gain from hardship. My kids were born in 2003, and they were the reason why we ended up in Ontario. So by 2005, we started thinking, okay, rural Newfoundland, we probably want to raise the kids with more opportunities. We love the place. Where are we going to go? And we started looking at options. I had an offer in a family medicine practice in St. John's. I worked there for a month. I'll be honest with you. There wasn't enough stimulation for me. I was already working part-time emergency medicine for the past few years at the health sciences. And I said, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. I'm going back. I'm going to do training in emergency medicine. And I fly over. I interview at four or five universities. I got offered a few offers and I decided to take on McMaster. And 2006, I start at Mac. I do a year. I have already signed a contract with Niagara Health that I'm going to come here in 2007 when I'm done. And I start in Niagara in 2007 as an Emerge doc. So this is a picture of the old St. Catharines General. This is after it closed, so that's the fence there. And this is another picture of the hotel, the old hotel do. Now they are both demolished and gone. Yeah. And a new chapter of our lives begin. Mm -hmm. Bought For the house, this house on spec in February. Took a walk. It was all covered in ice and snow. I liked the place. We chose it because of the school. And here we are. Amazing. Amazing. 13 years later. So this is where my education journey starts. I'd always had students when I was Newfoundland. I had an adjunct appointment. 
at uh, Mun, and I always had medical students in the clinic doing rural family medicine rotations. But to be honest, one of the two things, there were two things that made me come to Niagara. And they were the promise of a new hospital, but most importantly, the promise of a new campus. So when I came here and I interviewed for the job in 2005, there was a talk about the new hospital being built and talk about McMaster coming in and the Niagara Regional Campus starting. So in 2008, the campus opened with the first, yeah. first class. And this was sort of my first involvement in formal leadership. I applied for the REL job in emergency medicine. I got it. And we started. We started building the campus. Okay. So you were the regional educational lead for emergency medicine right from the get-go. Yep. Right. This We're talking from the ground up. So this is amazing because you get really a hand in guiding the way education is going to be delivered to students in Niagara. And having to build a structure. We were always involved in education, but there was no formal structure. And there was definitely no formal commitment to educating as many medical students. And different departments took different approaches. And the Department of Emergency Medicine took this approach. If you like teaching, you're going to get a lot of students. If you don't like teaching, you're going to get less students. But you're going to teach. Whether you like it or not. Exactly. Because there was no other way of doing it. And the department was small at the time. 10 or 12 of us, and we started doing it. To this date, it's a rivalry between anesthesia and emergency medicine as which one is the better rotation. Oh, I didn't realize there was that rivalry. Uh, There is a rivalry. I'm surprised to hear that family medicine isn't in there, but I think that's because we're a step above. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, maybe a rivalry within the hospital. Yes, okay. And and maybe a rivalry between... And maybe it's a rivalry between us old guys who did this back. Yeah. Maybe today there's no yeah, rivalry. I don't know. Yeah, oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> we have changed leaders since then sure. uh, once or twice, and maybe it doesn't exist. But I'd like to think that there's always been a rivalry between anesthesia and emergency medicine. No doubt. And that emergency medicine comes out on top. Uh, I, I don't know. No? I don't know. Okay. They're on, they're okay. on a good, they're on a good, uh, okay. good rotation. Yeah, they're pretty good. And then by 2010, something else happened. I really did not like the place I was working in. Things were behind the times. We were struggling a lot. We were struggling with scheduling. We were struggling with processes. We were struggling with manpower. We were struggling with recruitment. We were struggling. We were struggling with a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And I threw my hat in for the site chief for St. Catherine's Jam. It was probably one of the other big lessons that I learned in life was that if you don't like something, change it. You might not always succeed, but change it. And it's not about revolutions. It's not about cheering from the sidelines. It's not about tweeting angrily. It's not about having passionate and loud, you know, arguments in meetings. It's actually, again, about swimming with the tide and changing course slowly. Mm -hmm. Because I realized, I joined in 2007, and from 2007 to 2009, 2010, I was an advocate of a lot of things that needed to be changed. But I realized that if you're on the sidelines, you don't really have influence in how things move. you got to throw your hat in and do it. You have to be a stakeholder. You You have have to be a stakeholder. You have to be at the table. If you're not at the table, you have no say. So in my tenure as site chief was, you know, had a few really challenging times in Niagara Health. The pictures you have in front of you. So the one on the left is me and the old observation at the emergency department. This is during our C. diff outbreak. Oh, goodness. 
and you notice all the curtains closed. Absolutely. And, and I also notice a uh, less than happy expression on yes, your face. Yes, we were tired. Yeah. We were exhausted, not only from the overcrowding and from the pandemic, but from the scrutiny, from media anger, from people's anger, Absolutely. rightfully so. That was a very tough time. The picture on the right is us working in the new department while it's still under construction. The new hospital had some delays. When the market crash happened, there was a delay in financing, and there was another three, about three years delay in opening. And it was a lot of work to put it back online and to, you know, get things going. It was a great experience, though. Most people don't have the opportunity to build and move into a new hospital in their, you know, professional lives. And have some say in the design, in the, yeah. in the you know, actual running of how services are going to be delivered. It's pretty amazing that you were able to guide that. I am hopeful that I'm going to be involved again because it's going to happen twice in my tenure with the opening of the new Niagara South Hospital, hopefully around 2025. Our inaugural class. What a nice photo. So, you know, again, here we have a, a med school graduation photo centered around the dean of the medical school at the time. And it just, you know, it's so full of promise. It's so full of, of hope. And you see some of these faces and you, you know that these are all physicians working. Some of them are my colleagues. It's, it's pretty in, awesome. In fact, last night, as I was trying to find the slide deck, I found this picture and I sent it to the four graduates who are now all my colleagues. Jen is our REL for family medicine at the campus. Dave Haywood is one of our eMERGE docs, and he is our recruitment lead. Pam is one of our eMERGE docs as well, and she is now leading our accreditation efforts at the campus. And Louis is one of our radiologists. It's pretty amazing. It's quite a testament to the community and the culture that Niagara has been able to foster both as a medical school and as a working environment. And quite in contrast to kind of the feelings you were describing, you know, initially in your involvement with Niagara. Yeah. Funny story again. My class in medical school, we were the inaugural class. Really? Yep. That is funny. We were the inaugural class. Well, you're bringing class. it right back, full yeah. circle. Full circle. That picture you saw of us graduating, we were yeah. the first class. And this picture just brings me so much pride. It does. It, it should. It you is know, beautiful. These smiles on these individuals' faces are so genuine. And I think it is amazing to have that perspective, being able to look back and see those individuals and know that they are competent and compassionate physicians who are, you know... And educators and leaders. I, absolutely. Because someone taught you and taught me one day. Yes. So we owe it to the next generation. It's, it's our job. That's it's not something... Yeah. You pay it forward, right? In you fact, see yeah. that You told next... me that you were a clerk when I was an R3 at CHEO. That is absolutely true. I didn't know if that would come up. But yes, you were doing a rotation in Ottawa. I think probably as part of your yeah, year. Yeah, it was, in it was pediatrics emergency medicine. emergency medicine. That's right. It's and we were on one late night. I think we may have even had two shifts together, but I definitely remember one night because I had no idea of your history. I had no idea of, you know, where you were. And I think in residency, everything gets painted with a broad brush. And sometimes I tend to just imagine that the person next to me is just like me. And I couldn't believe this guy who was an R2, well, really you were an R3. I was an R3, yeah. Um, I didn't know that. Slightly senior to me, but, you know, we're in the same age bucket. 
And how did he know so much? How was he already so good? And I felt very inadequate. I'm and sorry. Then I towards the end of the shift, you mentioned also that you had kids. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm <laughs> never going to be like that. How, how am I going to... How am I going to get as good as this guy? <laughs> oh, the, the thing you did not know is I had 13 years under my belt already. I was in practice for many years. I am sorry. And, and no, oh my it gosh, nothing to apologize for. But I think you make an excellent point, which is when you see an example of who you want to be in front of you, or maybe even you don't know that that's who you want to be. You just see something that you like and you want to model that and you want to adapt that. And, you know, the energy that you brought to an ER shift at four o'clock in the morning was really the thing I think that I took home. That is so flattering. Thank you. I mean it. A hundred percent. Thank you. So it looks like we're, uh, we're moving to the present. We're getting closer and closer to the present. Ah, 2012. Another thing I never thought I would do. 2012, I was the chair of the CAPE conference, the CAPE National League. Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, uh, 2012 National Conference was in Niagara Falls. And I had never done conferences before. I'd attended a few, but you know, I've never done this before. And somehow I ended up becoming the chair of the conference. And it was an amazing experience. It is a massive undertaking. About 800 people, a very successful conference. It took about a year and a half work. Uh, work with some amazing people. It was just such a great learning experience and so satisfying. And then it was very different than other administration and leadership experiences I've had where you work, then you bring something to life, and then you keep growing it and leading it and adapting it, and it fails and it succeeds and it has good days and it had bad days. Chairing the conference was amazing because after about a year and a half of work, we opened... And I did my opening speech. And then this thing came to life. I had no control over it anymore. It was 800 people. Just the place was bubbling with life. It Taking was, on a life of its own. Exactly. And I just sat for four days and watched it. Amazing. It was awesome to see veterans and young docs and residents and students interacting, having fun talking about important things. It was just enjoying each other. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. I'm hoping that we'll be able to do this again soon. Uh, last Cape was canceled. I think this is such as the times, but I definitely understand and it really resonates with me. You know, I think when we take for granted the networking and community and collaboration, you know, the, the amazing things that come from working in communities, it's pretty powerful stuff. And I think that's one of the things that for a lot of us prevents the burnout. You know, it re-energizes. It, it brings important things back into focus and it reminds you why you're in this and what yep. you love about it. And 2013. Here's two a very, very proud man standing oh. in front of the emergency department with his arms wide open, sort of welcoming the world. It's as if you're saying, <laughs> take me on, you know, like, come on in, show me your worst. So I'm wearing an orange t-shirt and we all wore color-coded t-shirts to know everybody's role. So this was the command center. So I was in the command center, but I had to go out. It was uh, the weekend before Easter, March 13th we moved, 2013. Was this the actual, so I remember the lead up, the buzz in the community was robust in the days leading up to the actual, move. you know, move, physically transporting this was the day of the patients, move. people, equipment, you know, the, the, the logistics behind this. I mean, it's your sister an, would have had a field day, right? It's an amazing undertaking. 
we closed two hospitals and opened one overnight, moved everything overnight. And I can only take credit for a small part of it. It's a huge team, a lot of people, a lot of professionals. We hired a Canadian company that does this. And apparently they do like 80% of all the North American hospital moves. They're like the people who do this. Niche market. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm glad yep. it exists. Yep. But the same year, the Niagara Regional Campus opened, the new building at the Brock University Campus. So we actually had a beautiful house to ourselves. Yep. And, you know, I use the term house loosely. Niagara was given, as part of McMaster's School of Medicine, a physical presence, which I think has really allowed us to attract and provide something to students that's very unique here. Were you involved in the school before the new campus opened? I was. I so was. You, so you remember, remember the old the, hallway the and the old Norris Wing? Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. In the basement of the psych absolutely. section of the hospital. Yeah. And the rooms all smell a little bit funny, like, like <laughs> yes, a thrift store, but also like an old library. And, but yeah. we had great IT. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, I, we had, we had great video conferencing equipment. You know, on the whole, I, I think you've, you've brought this up many, many times today. It didn't really matter what you had or didn't have. You were doing something you liked and you felt passionate about. And, you know, I think on a personal note, I was new to the community. Somebody reached out and said, hey, if you're interested in teaching, we can always use someone who wants to teach. And it just sort of, you took that risk and it didn't matter that, of course, it was dark and dingy and, and all sorts of things. But what but did it, it was matter? beautiful. It was. It was you know, beautiful. And I had three students in my first clinical skills session. And, you know, I think that those were great days. They were. They were awesome. Ah, 2015. So I decide that, you know, maybe I should add some formal. <laughs> maybe I'm not busy enough. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I should add some formal training to my leadership skills. So I went to York University Schillick School of Business and I did a year's uh, master's certificate in leadership. It was a great program. It was sponsored by the OMA. Just a lot of wonderful skills, but more importantly, wonderful people. And from there, I moved on to another stage of my life. I moved on in 2016 from REL Emergency Medicine to the Clinical Education Coordinator. And I know it's sort of a vague title. So basically, I coordinate the clerkship in Niagara Regional Campus and coordinate it with Hamilton. Same year, I threw my hat in the ring for Regional Chief of Emergency Medicine, and I got the job. Two major, uh, major leadership strokes right there. Two shifts at the same time. And when I think back, my life happens in chunks of 10 years. And I'd like to think that I had some control over that, but maybe not. However, every time it included a step of sort of new education and new learning and moving, moving platforms, whether it's moving to Canada or whether it's moving to Ontario and doing my emergency training or, work, you know, going to York University and doing my, my leadership training. But every time there was a change in platform and there was, and there was some education again, mm -hmm. and I am now halfway through my other 10 years and I'm already starting to think of what What's am I going to do? What's next? What am I going to do? Beautiful. Uh, I have another five years of my tenure as regional chief and another, I think, two and a half as CEC. And what am I going to do? So I have a few ideas, but we'll leave that for another, okay, another yeah. podcast. So I tried to think of what I had learned over the years. And probably the biggest lesson was you never know where life's going to take you. Life is, is weird and it has a mind of its own and it will take you on journeys, sometimes willingly, sometimes not. And you can only plan so much of your life. And the only thing I have 
I am sure of is whatever plans I make, life will change. As life throw them off, throw my plans off, and, and, and of course, and, and I will plan again. And that's really the only thing you can do. You have demonstrated an amazing amount of innovation in those plan and replan opportunities. It comes out of necessity. I don't think it works any other way because be assured that life is going to change things for you. And if you are not willing to adapt, you will break. And sometimes we come close and sometimes we break and it's okay. We mend again. We plan again. We you know, get up on our feet and start walking again. I learned another very important lesson. I tell people I'm a true Darwinian. I don't think there is good or bad change. Some of the best things in my life came through times where I thought things were just going so badly. And I don't think there is good or bad change. I think there's just change. And what comes after is probably more change because we change and we adapt. And if things are meant to live and thrive, change will stick and will stay and will move on. And if things don't fit, that change will disappear. I have these conversations a lot with my colleagues about, oh, but that's bad change. I don't know. I just know it's change. I will work my best to try and make a good change. If it's bad, guess what? We'll change it again. And Kind of the concept of PDSA cycles, right? You change and you adapt and you change again. And, but that's something I, I, I really learned with time. And it wasn't easy at times to, to yeah. get that, especially when things are not going well. When you describe this, what I hear is, you know, a little, a little nugget, a little secret to where some of your resilience comes from. You know, the ability to shift and not be static and be mobile and, and that idea that yeah, as you've labeled, change is not bad or good. It is just change. It's just change. So, yeah. you know, you, you can take bad change and you can look at it through a really good lens. Yeah. Or you can take good change and look <laughs> through it with a really bad lens. <laughs> Absolutely. But you choose. I'm having these conversations. My, both my kids are applying to university. And it's a very stressful time, mm-hmm. as you can imagine, for a multitude of reasons. And we're talking about passions and what you should do and what you're good at. And I try to tell them a lesson that I got through life, which is the actual joy does not come from the subject matter itself, but I think it comes more from the mastery of it. Mm -hmm. When you get good at something, there is beauty in that. It feels good. Yeah. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if you're playing football or playing hockey or treating patients or managing Baking a corporation. Or exactly. Your, your or cooking. Cup. Absolutely. Or, or whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. It's the, the real joy comes from the mastery. Mm-hmm. That is the real joy. However you choose to define yeah. that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably another thing I, I've learned along the way is, is that leadership is really about relationships and teams. You are never alone. A man is an island is wrong. We are not islands. We are so interconnected. And relationships need not be transactional. They just need to be genuine. And everything else will will sort of fall into place. You just have to nurture them. Mm -hmm. And I can't say enough good things about all the people in my life, personally and professionally. 
Well, I think that that human-centered approach, you know, you've given us examples of how it has extended into clinical work and academic work and leadership work and home life. And, and you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that personal reflection so much. Thank you. Thank you. It is hardest really to manage yourself during difficult times more than managing anything else. So this was something I was talking to residents about. And uh, they'd ask me questions about, you know, how do you become a leader? And what do you do? You know, what if you don't want to be a leader? Mm -hmm. And uh, my answer was your leaders already. It's just, it's a matter of magnitude. Absolutely. And it's absolutely your choice. Even when you say, I'm not involved in leadership, every time you resuscitate a patient, you're involved in leadership. Every time you have a group of students that you're teaching and you want to direct them and teach them and make them see the world in a way and, and guide them, you're being a leader. The leadership, I think, in what we do is just an amount of magnitude. Absolutely. It's not, it's not a matter of choice. Absolutely. No, I think that's, that's an excellent point. And I think if we can develop that in our microcosm of ourselves, we can see those extensions as they build to the community wider and wider, however big that circle becomes. If my efforts at leadership are, you know, showing my children that I put the paper in the gray box and the plastic in the blue <laughs> box, you know, I, I am a civic minded person and I will recycle with the best of them. And, and I know it's a small and silly example, but I think, I think that speaks to what you're describing. Well, Rafi, I have to tell you something. This has been one of the most enjoyable conversations I have had in a long time. Oh, thank I you very much. could sit and hear you storytell probably for hours. My interest would not wane. My bladder capacity would. But it has been a delight to talk to you today. Thank you. Same here. It's always such a pleasure. And next time we do this, hopefully we'll be able to sit closer to each yeah, other and absolutely. share some food and drink. Yes, that would be wonderful. And may I suggest that the next 10-year project is marked by some kind of uh, novel or, or personal memoir. I'd love to hear these. I'd love to have these reflections written down. And I, I'm hopeful that our, our Spark listeners will, will enjoy the podcast just as much. I hope so as well. Thank wonderful. you very much, Angelique. Thank you. Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now, on to our second segment. Hello, everyone. I'm here with another guest for our Providers as Patients series. And I'm here to introduce you to Nicole Jellick, who is a registered nurse at St. Mary's and Guelph Hospital. And she's written in to us to say that she'd like to share us her story of crossing onto the other side of the curtain and donning the patient gown instead of the yellow PPE gown that we're all wearing right now. So I'd love to kind of hear your perspective there, Nicole. So thank you so much for writing to let us know that you'd like to share. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. All right. So can you tell us a little bit about your story? And you don't have to go into the specifics, but what was it like to become someone who was being cared for rather than being the person who usually cares for others? Well, first off, I was in the ICU at Jervinsky Hospital in Hamilton. I first went into Cambridge Hospital here. I'm from Kitchener. So I actually went to Cambridge. That's where I started all of my registered nursing career. I went and worked in the emergency department for many years. So I was lucky that I had a friendships from over the years that took care of me, but it took me a while. I was trying not to be pushy 
I was trying not to, you know, announce that you don't want to announce that you're a healthcare provider because I feel like they kind of then relate to you differently. They don't treat you as a patient. They treat you more like a nurse. So um, I wanted people to take me seriously and tell me how it was. And I definitely got that. I think it was very difficult because right now going through COVID, when we had our first cases at St. Mary's back in March, you couldn't have your family there. There were so many strict rules. I think it really opened my eyes up when I was hospitalized and had to go through that with my family. You know, you start to realize also going through this experience, the little things that really matter the most. People don't remember, you know, the skills or people don't remember the pain if you can do the small things. And I think that that was definitely something that I took out of all of this was, you know, the fluffing and puffing of pillows and taking the seconds to really explain things to me and my family were some of the things that I definitely took away from this experience. So it was really cool. I'm sorry that had to happen, but what I'm hearing you say is that it's the little gestures that make all the difference. That sitting, even if you have PPE on, on the edge of the bed and taking the time to connect with a patient or a family member to make sure they really understand something and not to be one foot out the door. That would break the negative pressure for the room anyway. So you probably want to just take your time when you can in the room. It sounds like the small gestures of helping someone feel more comfortable getting them that warm blanket, fluffing their pillow, like you said, if there's pillows at all. That's a whole different issue. I don't know where the secret vortex of pillows is in every hospital, but there always seems to be one. And I think just understanding that there's a person who's in that gown and connecting with them in, in a humanistic way is really powerful to me. I myself have been a patient, and I think that that's a privilege if you've had providers that can care for you. And even if they know you're a nurse or a doctor or a physio or SLP, like at the end of the day, I think that they need to know that you're a human. And that's, I think, the hardest challenge right now in all the busyness and all the chaos. I don't know that COVID has been helping that at all. If anything, it's been a huge barrier. So now on the other side, what are some pro tips that you can give to our audience from your perspective of maybe two or three things that would be simple pro tips that we could share with everyone to think about as they head into their next shift, head into their next day. I'd love to hear your perspective. I think what you said about remembering that, yeah, we're healthcare providers. Yeah, we're frontline workers, but you're a human. I can remember one of the newer nurses in the ICU came to take care of me. And uh, one of my things was always you know, laughter. I've always said it through my career. If you got people to explain who I am as a nurse, it would be developing those patient nurse relationships and getting to know my patients is something that I really enjoyed before. And so I really encouraged a lot of the nurses to get to know me and I made it really easy. And one of the nurses actually said that she never thought that she would ever be in an ICU and laughing at this time. I think that remembering that, yes, it's a job. Yes, it's hard. We have busy days, but taking those couple of minutes to get to know your patient, I think really makes you a stronger nurse healthcare provider for that patient. And also it betters you as a person. We become really desensitized. I've found over my years, very robotic, and we have to get away from doing that. I also had really amazing physiotherapists. I was in ICU for over uh, two months. I got intubated and I was trached. I was paralyzed. I um, actually got diagnosed with Guillain-Barre syndrome. 
So I really found the importance of working as a team and utilizing all those different team members in a positive way because I really saw how it all came together. And then when I went to rehab, it was a very different perspective, but one again that I never thought I would be experiencing for myself. So definitely that first one, remembering obviously that we're human um, and uh, taking the time to get to know your patient. And the third one, it's always so hard because, you know, like I said, you, I have come away with more positives than I did negatives. I don't know if that's because I was a healthcare worker. People ask me that all the time. And I can't say, I would just really hope that, you know, people who are healthcare providers just treat me the same as they would other patients. For sure. Kind of treat all the patients the same and imagine they're a colleague, a friend, a loved one, and try to center on giving that gift of humanity. I wanted to explore the one thing that you just talked about, because I think it's an interesting point, the use of humor. Because I think that I've read some papers on either side. Patients find it awkward to bring out humor with providers, because I think that they feel that we have this seriousness that we want to bring. And anyone that's watched the show Scrubs knows that in our heads, there's anything but serious, right? Because we're having those moments where we're having ridiculous kind of like leaps of daydreaming sometimes or just humor. How do you use humor as a provider? Because I'd like like to understand, it sounds like I hear that you joked around a lot as a patient. And I think that that's probably because you are a provider. You know that the inside scoop is that sometimes, you know, even on the darkest days, you can have some levity and it can be a way to bring some of that fun back into the workplace. How do you broach that issue as a provider? Like, it sounds like you've used comedy and humor all yeah. of your career. I'd love to know your pro tips. I like to use it myself. So I, I wanted to yeah. share with you. Some of like my strategies to use it, even before I was sick, were things like I would get to know the patient and then you start to kind of veer off onto more of a, they start going more negative, you start to go more positive and you kind of find that even balance. And then you just say jokes that are surrounding you that are very objective. Obviously, you're not going to make subjective jokes towards somebody. But a funny thing that had happened, you can bring up. I find that the stress and the anxiety of being in an ICU is already enough for both healthcare provider and patient. And so if you can get to that point with that patient to be able to use humor with them, that kind of lightens you up and lightens up that patient and stress is now no longer an issue. You know, the white coat syndrome, people will be more open to talk to you and more emotionally aware while they're in the ICU. It took a lot for me to learn how to be on a ventilator. I never thought again in a million years that I would be on the other side, but definitely, you know, saying funny sentences or, you know, I just, that that's something that I've always done. And sometimes people can be the hardest apples and you just kind of take bites out and you're left with the core and you're left with a really funny experience and a really lovely person. Sometimes perspectives, unfortunately, when people are stressed out and upset, they can look a little angry and a little upset. But again, I think that lightening up the conversation and talking about them. That's what they want. That's what patients want. They want to be able to talk about themselves. And if we don't provide them that opportunity, then you're never going to get to the point of laughter. You're never going to get to the point of breaking down what you know is going on with them. 
I love that. The idea, you have to get to know someone before you can pull the right joke. I really like that. I think that what we often do is, I guess there are some canned jokes you probably have up your sleeve like <laughs> anyone does, right? And you probably have some scripts and routines of things that often go over well. You know, when I pull out the ultrasound and I'm scanning like a male older patient, I always make the baby joke, you know, before they do because they're always going to get that joke often, right? And so I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, uh, which way the baby's facing and whether or not it's, it's you know, like coming along and everyone's yeah. like, you know, I don't know, just joking. And it's harder to tell yeah. with a mask on right now, but for sure. <laughs> usually like those are the kind of jokes that we can bring in that are really less about like everybody knows that a 65 year old man that scanned their tummy is probably not going to be pregnant. And so that's an obvious joke that I can make when that's fairly safe. Right. So I do think that those are the kind of things that we can have some moments of levity and break the ice a little bit. So. I also think, though, as a patient, it's important to break that ice with mm -hmm. your nurses and your doctors, because sometimes we're given a bit of the wrong perception. We mm -hmm. can look like we're really busy and we look really serious. You know, sometimes it's not just about us pulling that joke. I find that if patients can have kind of that same mentality, they end up recovering usually really well. Mm -hmm. And um, they're the ones that, you know, you never thought would have gone mm -hmm. home. And after knowing John Smith for now three months in the ICU, you've really gotten to know this person. So I think mm -hmm. it goes both ways. And mm -hmm. you're right, COVID with the masks, you can't tell sometimes emotion. Mm -hmm. So I think everyone enjoys some laughter. I can remember when I was in mm -hmm. ICU, every time I had to do something, I came up with a song. I used to have so much pain when I was getting moved mm -hmm. and singing for me, for some reason, was a little bit of a, of a release and it helps with pain mm -hmm. and getting through those movements. So yeah, just again, different perspective for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I think I've oh, learned wow. a lot from you today about the things that you might bring to the bedside. And I'm just really excited that you're on your pathway to recovery and that you're hopefully feeling a little stronger and better each day and getting back out there to yeah. spread that joy that you have rekindled, I guess, yeah. by being on the other side. Yes, thank you so much, Teresa. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.